We are currently in the middle of a series called True Crime Stories of Sin in the Bible. We've been looking at these different stories, trying to learn a little bit about sin and how God helps us deal with it through the power of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to go to the New Testament. We've been in a lot of Old Testament stories. We're turning to Matthew chapter 14. That's where a lot of today's material will come from, although we'll go to other gospel accounts to compare. But most of our time will be in Matthew chapter 14 as we talk about Herod's promise. Herod is an interesting individual, just like all of these that we've been studying in this series. And as we've gone through every example, we've been trying to understand not just what was done, but why it was done. For example, Adam and Eve ate forbidden fruit because they were seduced by the devil's lies. Cain killed his brother Abel because he was jealous. Ahab and Jezebel killed Naboth and stole his property because they were chasing the wrong inheritance. We studied about Achan and uh, how he took some of the devoted things that were under the ban because he thought he could cover up his sin and hide from God. Today we look at Herod. Why did Herod divorce his wife and commit adultery and incest and murder? Why did he do all of that? Well, the answer is that Herod, like all of us, was searching for significance, but he was looking for it in the wrong place. Like us, Herod was searching for significance, but he made the mistake of looking for it in the wrong place. Now, I think this quotation by T.S. Eliot explains what's going on pretty well. And so I want to read it here in the introduction of this lesson. He said, Half of the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They do not mean to do harm. They are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. Do you know what that struggle is like? Have you ever been wrapped up in that struggle to think well of yourself? Do you struggle with self-esteem? Are you searching for significance? We all are, but we have to be very careful because it's when we're in that desperate pursuit of significance that we often make the biggest mistakes. This was what was behind Herod's actions in the text this morning. All of us have this innate need for approval. And what a lot of us are missing is the idea that only God can give us that approval that we really need. And it takes a lifetime to gain that glory, that well done from God. It takes a long, long time. And so in our impatience, we often look for shortcuts, small glories. And that's where we really make mistakes. Solomon warned us about this long before T.S. Eliot said anything about it in the book of Ecclesiastes. The book begins, chapter 1, verse 2, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word vanity means empty, worthless, meaningless. He was talking about pursuing significance under the sun, as he called it, without 
recognition of God. He said it's a vain pursuit. He goes on later in the chapter saying this, verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven, under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. That's what life is like when you just chase significance through vain pursuits of this world. And that's what Herod did. This is Herod Antipas. He was guilty of murder, incest, adultery, awful things. And we're going to analyze his crime by looking at how all these things came through a misguided search for significance. First of all, we're going to notice his pursuit. And secondly, we're going to look at the ensuing paranoia that came as a result of these vain pursuits. And then finally, we're going to look at a contrast. We're going to look at a prince that he was confronted with who was very different from him. But let's start with the pursuit itself. And we'll see here that Herod pursued significance in a variety of under-the-sun ways. First of all, notice that he pursued significance through achievement. Now, a little background here. Many kings served during Herod's time, during Jesus' time, that is. Uh, first of all, you had the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was ruled by the emperor. He was over vast amount of territory. The emperor at this time was a man named Tiberius. But under Tiberius the emperor, there were a number of provinces. And the province that Jesus lived in was Galilee. He also traveled down to Judea quite a bit and Samaria. But he was, he was born and raised in Galilee. And Galilee... And the land of Palestine as a whole was ruled by a Herodian dynasty. Probably the best known Herod of the Herodian dynasty was Herod the Great. And Herod the Great had all of Palestine from uh, 4 BC to about 37, or I'm sorry, from about 37 BC to 4 BC. He was the Herod that was reigning when Jesus was born. He was the one that tried to get Jesus killed before he became an adult. And he had ten sons. And all of these sons were vying for their father's position. All of them hoped to inherit Palestine whenever their father passed away. But the Roman Empire disappointed them all. Because not a single one of them inherited the entire territory. Instead, they divided it up three ways among three of these ten sons. And our character for this story is one of those sons who inherited a third. You may have noticed in Matthew 14, verse 1, he's not called a king, he's called a tetrarch. Tetrarch means ruler of a fourth. And it's not used in a technical way here because I said the kingdom was divided into three parts, not four, four parts. But it just means a ruler of lesser significance than a king. Now I realize later on in verse 9, Matthew calls him a king, but he's not using this as an official title. Officially, he was a tetrarch. 
Now, this was something history tells us really bothered Herod Antipas. It really got under his skin. And uh, we learn through history that when Agrippa I, his nephew, the son of his brother Aristobulus, was called king, Herod Antipas, the character of our study this morning, he went and appealed to the Caesar, at that time Caligula, asking him if he could get this same honor that his nephew had received, who had not been ruling as long as he was. But Herod Agrippa, the nephew, he was friends with Caligula and convinced Caligula that Herod Antipas was in some kind of alliance with the Parthians. And so that created a political situation that was eventually Antipas's undoing. He was unseated and banished, depending on what history you read, to Gaul or to Spain where he lived the rest of his life. Now some of that may be a little boring history to you, but I'm wanting to show you how he tried really hard at politics and he worked really hard to gain significance or achievement. He wanted this title king and as far as he ever got was tetrarch and the harder he pushed and the more he wanted and the more he pursued, well eventually it led to his banishment. And The problem with basing your worth on achievement is it depends on so many other people besides just you. And those people can fail you. And even if you are able to achieve a little bit on your own, even then you're going to experience failure. And if all your worth is wrapped up in your achievement, then you're not going to see the failure the way you're supposed to see failure. You're supposed to look at failure as an opportunity to grow and to learn. Everybody fails, especially people who are trying to grow and do new things. Nobody's perfect. You're going to fail. And you're supposed to look at that failure as an opportunity to learn and do better. But if your worth and your identity is wrapped up in achievement, failure is going to be absolutely devastating to you as it was to Herod Antipas. But that's not all. He also sought significance through relationships. Let's look at this. Matthew explains in Matthew 14 that Herod's conflict with John the Baptist had something to do with an illicit relationship that he had. Look at Matthew 14, verses 3 and 4. Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And this obviously is a case of adultery. He was not supposed to be married to this woman. He had been married before to the daughter of uh, a Nabataean king named Eretus, and uh, he was supposed to be with her. But he left her for this woman Herodias. And so it was adultery. She was his brother Philip's wife, but it was also a case of incest because she was his niece through a half brother. So he was committing adultery and incest here. And it wasn't just a political alliance. Sometimes we look at these king's marriages and we say, well, they just married this person to smooth out relationships between provinces or nations. But in Josephus's history, he tells us that on a visit uh, to the area he met, uh, on a visit with his brother Philip, he met Philip's wife Herodias, and he fell in love with her. 
And so he saw this woman and he thought, this is the woman that can fulfill all my desires. She can make me feel like the man that I should be. I'm going to look at this relationship as a way to find significance. It's going to make me overcome my insecurities and inferiority complex. And so he married Herodias. And John preached against it, saying this marriage is unlawful. It is not lawful for you to be with her. And what law is he appealing to? Not the law of Rome. According to Roman law, he could do this, and he got away with it. According to the law of Moses, under which he was living at the time, uh, divorce was allowable under certain circumstances, but not certainly under these circumstances. And of course, under New Testament law, this was not at all allowed. Jesus holds us to higher standards, and he doesn't approve of divorce. And he says, Matthew 19, verse 6, What God has joined together, let not man separate. Right? So what he's doing here, playing around with marriage, like he can just jump from one spouse to another, however he pleases, is not lawful. It's not what God has planned for marriage. From all the way in the beginning, Moses said, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so what Herod was doing here with relationships was not the way... God wanted it. And whether it's a marriage or a friendship or a, a neighbor or a coworker, a classmate, a brother and sister in Christ, if you look for that one relationship to bring you fulfillment and you base your whole worth on another person besides God, it's not going to work. Because the way you're supposed to do it, it's not the relationship's not about you. Love works the other way. It's supposed to be about the other person. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing through rivalry or conceit, but count others as more significant than yourselves. Look not only, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if you go into a relationship to try to fix yourself and you're just thinking, me, 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 it's not going to work. Because relationships are all about you being concerned about the other person. This was another one of Herod's problems. Thirdly, he pursued significance through popularity. When you look at Matthew chapter 14, the story about John's death, it comes to us as a flashback. And the flashback is brought about when Herod learns about the fame of Jesus. Do you see that in verse 1? That's the English standard word. Um, other translations say the reports of Jesus. But this person, Jesus, is getting a lot of attention. And this is, this is bothering Herod and reminding him of John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus. And not only that, if you go down to verse 5, you also see that Herod wanted to put John to death, but he feared the people because they held John to be a prophet. Now, Herod was a respected individual. I mean, he may have been a tetrarch, but he was a ruler appointed by the Roman Empire. He had the areas of Galilee and Perea. He uh, was honored every time he came into town. People bowed down to his feet. He could have somebody killed with the snap of his fingers. 
He was a respected Roman dignitary. And yet it wasn't enough. He couldn't stand it. That's how popularity works. You can never get enough fame. You can never be popular enough. Whenever you're basing your worth on that, you have to have more followers, more people. The pursuit of popularity is like a drug. Think of social media. Instead of looking for a deep, satisfying, lifetime relationship with others, we go the quick route to social media for instant gratification. And we want those likes and those comments and those accolades. And, and they may come and give us a little rush there in the beginning, but it soon fades and we want more. More followers, more friends, more attention, more views. And it never gives more than hollow praise. It's soon gone and we're back for more. It's an addiction. Listen to these words written by Eric Hoffer in 1954. It's like he could see where social media was going to take us. He said, we need a chorus of consent. And we are engaged in an unceasing proselytizing campaign in our own behalf. In other words, we're like missionaries converting people to ourselves. So we curate these images, we, we hide our flaws, we make ourselves look like people that we really aren't, we post these things online, and we want to be the most popular person in the world. We all want to be celebrities these days. We're addicted to popularity, addicted to fame. And it's not, bring, it's not making anybody happy. In fact, studies show that the time spent on social media makes you less happy, not more happy. Paul tells us to look for something deeper. I'm going to bring this passage up from Romans 2, 28 and 29. It's usually not used in this connection, but if you look at it and you think about what he's saying, it's all about how we got to go deeper than popularity to find significance. He says, no one is a Jew, and this is all about approval, because he's talking to a Jewish audience that's proud of their Jewishness and the signs of circumcision, and they're, they're opposing Gentiles. So he's saying, no one gets approval as a Jew. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, that is based on the appearance, how you look externally, nor is circumcision outward, the way you present yourself and physical. But a Jew, approval, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And look at this last part. His praise is not from man, but from God. The praise that is important, the praise that will fulfill you and make you feel important, is the praise that comes from God not the praise that comes from man. Human praise is hollow. It never fulfills. Let's look at a fourth matter. Fourth way that he sought significance is through lust. Everything came to a head, excuse the pun, on Herod's birthday. As part of the celebration, we read in Matthew chapter 14, verses 6 through 8, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. 
Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Matthew says the king was sorry, but because of the oaths he made, he sent and had John beheaded and his head was brought on a platter. Why did he find himself in this compromised position? He got carried away by his lust. The dancing she was doing, this was a provocative dance to entice lust. That's all it was. It was a filthy parade of flesh. And it put him in a compromised position. That's what we do. That's what happens to us when we turn to lust to try to find our significance. Why do young men get hooked on pornography? Why do people have affairs? Why does sex sell? Why do we find ourselves in a culture saturated with fornication and lust? It's because we think we can find our fulfillment through lust. And that's not where it comes from. Instead, where does pornography lead? To addiction and weakness. Where does casual sex lead? Compromise and shame. Where does adultery lead? Broken homes and heartbreak. Is it worth it? Have enough people tried this for us to learn that lust is not going to fulfill us? It's not going to make us feel more like a man. It's not going to make women feel loved and cherished. That love is more than just physical. That intimacy is for marriage. When are we going to finally learn these lessons? The Bible tells us, of course, but we see enough wreckage all around us. We, we see all the evidence around us we should know. What we're yearning for is something deeper and really more attainable. Bruce Marshall explained it this way. He said, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. That's what we all are looking for. Whether we're chasing popularity or achievement, or lust, we're looking for God. That's the only approval that will make us whole. So let's turn from the pursuit of Herod to the paranoia that ensued. Because he was looking for significance in the wrong places, he became very paranoid. That's usually what happens after vain pursuits. There's an illustration that occurred after World War I after World War I, hundreds of shell-shocked French soldiers couldn't remember who they were. And the military records were so faulty, they were of no help. And so someone had a suggestion. They said, let's have an identification rally in Paris. So they scheduled the date, and they, they told people, if you're missing a soldier who hasn't come back from war, See if you can come and identify him at this rally. We have hundreds of, of soldiers suffering from amnesia. Thousands of people came to this rally as one by one, soldier after soldier, went up on a platform 
and anxiously asked, please, please, can somebody tell me who I am? And I think that question is being asked by a lot of anxious people today. They want to feel significant. They're struggling with self-esteem. They desperately want approval, but they don't know where to get it because they don't know who they are. And all of the chaos in their lives is just this one question. Please, please, will someone tell me who I am? And God has the answer. Now, you know what that feels like? You probably do. It's scary. And you can see the fear in Herod Antipas. He was afraid. Number one, he was afraid of his wife. She's the one who wanted John thrown in prison. He was afraid of his wife, so he imprisoned an innocent man. Number two, although he wanted initially to put John to death, he was afraid of the people because they held him to be a prophet. Number three, he was afraid of the girl who danced for him. History tells us her name was Salome. Herodias' daughter, because he'd made a promise to her to give her whatever she asked. So when she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter, he gave it to her against his better judgment. He was afraid of his guests because he'd made this promise in front of them and he made an oath and he didn't want to see, seem to be a, the kind of man that would go back on his oath. And he was afraid of John. Even after he was dead, he was afraid of John. This was a man who was running from ghosts. And to explain this, I'm going to go, get away from Matthew 14 just for a moment and give you a look into the psychology of Herod after all these vain pursuits. Go to Luke chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. Luke tells us in Luke 9 that Herod heard reports of Jesus healing the multitudes. And all these rumors were circulating. Some people were saying this was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some said Elijah. Others said one of the other prophets had risen. Luke said Herod was perplexed. I looked into that word perplexed. And it can mean at a loss. Philip's translation renders it, it caused him acute anxiety. He hears this man from Nazareth is preaching the kingdom of God, healing the multitudes. And he, his first thought is, it's the man that I imprisoned and beheaded. He's come back from the dead. He's coming after me. Herod was a man who was running, looking over his shoulder for the ghost of John, probably due to a guilty conscience, and it chased him the rest of his life. In fact, when you turn over to Luke chapter 23, during Jesus' trials, you learn that Pilate can do nothing with Jesus because he knows he's an innocent man, and he, he wants to wash his hands clean of the whole incident, and he discovers Herod's in town. And Herod's over Galilee, which is where Jesus was from, 
So he had this idea, I'll, I'll, I'll send, send him over to Herod. Maybe Herod will know what to do with him. And in Luke chapter 23, verse 8, we read that when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Now you read that he was very glad. You might think he was happy or excited. No, he was, he was anxious to see him because he was paranoid. You see... He was hoping that he would call this Jesus up and disprove all the claims and reports around him. Because if he could do that, then he would know this isn't John back from the dead, and I'm safe. He can continue to pursue those vain things. Of course, if Jesus had worked some sign, that would be another matter. But we all know the story. When Jesus was brought before him, he performed no sign because Jesus wasn't going to abuse his power in order to satisfy some tetrarch's paranoia. Herod's life ended in banishment, not glory. Everywhere he looked for significance ended in a dead end. This is where vain pursuits lead to fear and paranoia. But let's look at a contrast as we bring this to a close. Let's look at the prince. When Jesus was brought before Herod, the ruler was faced with a stark contrast. Because in Jesus, before him stood a man who didn't need approval. Pilate had found him innocent, yet even though he was on trial for his life, he wasn't speaking in his defense. And we can be certain Herod had never seen a man like this man from Nazareth. Although he was all-powerful, he didn't feel the need to prove himself with signs. He wasn't going to abuse his power to satisfy Herod's curiosity. Although he was innocent, he didn't try to justify himself with words. Look at Luke 23, 9 and 10. Herod questioned Jesus, and the chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, but Jesus made no answer. At this... Verse 11 tells us, Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. The splendid clothing, by the way, was meant to add to Jesus' humiliation. It was a mockery. John tells us in John 19.5, it was a crown of thorns and a purple robe. Throughout the ordeal, Jesus said nothing in his defense. It recalls Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't need to say anything. There's an old saying that goes, little people talk about people. Average people talk about things. Great people talk about ideas. Jesus wasn't a little person. He didn't need to talk. His reputation stood for itself. Everyone knew he performed miracles. Everyone knew he spoke as one having authority. He didn't need to explain himself to a man like Herod, a little man. 
He wasn't little because of the way God made him. He wasn't little because God didn't care about him. He was little because he rejected God. He was seeking approval in all the wrong places. Wouldn't you like to feel the freedom of a person who doesn't have to be anyone other than who he is? Aren't you tired of constantly trying to justify yourself? Do you sometimes feel like you're on a campaign just to get people to understand that you have value? Aren't you tired of that? Stop seeking the approval of men because even if you find it, it's only going to last for a moment. And let's assume, and this never happens, but let's assume you gain that approval and it lasts you for a lifetime. Let me tell you, it's not going to satisfy you. Solomon tried it the hard way. And at the end of his experiment, he said this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. The conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The word duty is supplied by the translators. What it really says is, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. This is the only thing that will make you whole, that will heal you. That will fulfill you. At the end of time, what do you want to hear? He had a lot of followers on Facebook. He was really good at his job. She was attractive to a lot of men. Or do you want to hear from the sovereign ruler of the whole universe, well done, good and faithful servant. What's going to make you whole? What's going to fulfill you? Don't make the mistake of Herod. Seek significance through God. And if we can help you with that this morning, let us do it right now as we stand together and as we sing.